We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, continuing on in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And this morning, Peter is going to write to us about governing authorities. This is not an unusual theme in the scriptures. The scriptures often talk to us about our place under governing authorities. And I think it's very important to understand the context of where Peter is writing and how he is writing. Because it was not a great situation for him. When he wrote, Israel was a conquered nation. A conquered nation occupied by Rome, taxed by Rome, governed by Rome. And they lived under that. And Nero was the emperor when Peter wrote this. He had not entered into the full persecution that Emperor Nero would bring to Christians later on, but he was no friend of the church. And later, Peter's own death would take place at the hands of Nero, who ordered his execution. And so in light of that, let's read uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, I'm going to do my best to explain this passage to you this morning and then bring some conclusions. And if we can't get through all of it, I will continue to write to you some in the newsletter this week about this. Because this is a, an extremely important concept. And it's a concept that I encourage you to read another passage about. We're not going to get to this morning, but Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Romans 13, 1 through 7 is a passage written by Paul that mirrors these same concepts and writes the same things in a different way and expands it in in certain areas. But the, the key thought here is how he starts out in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. To be in subjection under something is to be under the authority of that thing. We are called and commanded as Christians to be under the authority of the civil government that is over us. Any time in scripture that we are commanded to be under the authority of something, it is with the expectation that there is going to be disagreement between the two parties. You don't have to be called to be in subjection to someone that you just really enjoy being around because you agree on just about everything. But when you know there's going to be struggle and the two of you have to coexist with each other, one person or party is going to come under the authority of the other person. And this is for our own good. And so here we as Christians are commanded to be in subjection to civil authorities for the Lord's sake. Which is interesting. That means that it's not because they are good in their own sake or maybe that they're even right. It is for the Lord's sake that we submit ourselves to these governing institutions. And an example is given here. For for his day, the day that he lived in, the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. 
And so we have this downward stepping of delegated authority, an emperor and a governor, and then those, the regular body of people below those being governed by them. And the entire thing is set in the framework that God is almighty and that the authority that the emperor has is a delegated authority from God. And so God is the ultimate end of authority, delegates authority to an emperor who then delegates authority to a governor and to lesser leaders, and it keeps going down the road. So I would ask you this morning, do you think Nero saw himself as having authority from God? I would say absolutely not. Nero thought he was the final authority. He thought he could do whatever he wanted to do. He was the emperor. He was the final say in everything. But does that mean that he was not under authority? No, it doesn't. I encourage you to read the Old Testament. The Old Testament is filled with stories of arrogant rulers who thought that they were the only final authority and that they could do whatever they wanted to and all their life and the lives of those under them were in their hands. But what the Old Testament teaches us is that God is the final authority and that he gives power and takes away power and he raises up kingdoms and brings down kingdoms according to his will to accomplish what he is trying to do in the world, what he will do in the world, I should say. And so civil government, though, is ordained by God, and that's an important part of this passage. Civil government exists for a purpose. It is not here by happenstance. And what we see in government is a, is a spectrum of government. If you go on the far side here of a perfect government, you will never see perfect government in this fallen and sinful world. We will only experience perfect government in the kingdom of God when we one day enter into God's kingdom, when there is no more sin and the monarch of that kingdom is Christ Jesus himself, a perfect ruler of a perfected people. We will not see that until we enter into the kingdom of God. And so in this life, there is always sin and there is always struggle. And so the best that we can hope for in this life is good government. A government that is working for the benefit of the people and working for peace and order and prosperity and society. And then it kind of slides down the scale to mixed government where, you know, there's an obvious problem, but yet things are still, for the most part, good. I would put our country in this area, that for generations we've been going back and forth on the scale between good and mixed and good and mixed. When you go to bad government, bad government is a government that exists for those that are leadership, in leadership, and it exists to enrich them, and it is abusing the people that are underneath it. There is still a certain degree of order and a certain degree of um, civil society, but it is not for the benefit of the people. It is a bad governance. I would put those like North Korea, your China's, Venezuela's, if you go to like the Taliban in Afghanistan, that's going to shift all the way towards this last portion, which is no government. I don't know how many of you have traveled overseas and been in places where there is no government. No government is anarchy, where the who's in charge is whoever has the most guns. And they go around literally raping and pillaging and there are no municipal, there's no light, there's no power, there's no garbage service, there's no cable, there's no internet. It's whatever these people want to do to wreak havoc on the nations that are there. Libya still has no set government in this day and age. The areas of sub-Saharan Africa are like this. They are absolute anarchic chaos. And so 
government is instituted by God to bring us hopefully to this, this far side over here where there are leaders that are informed by who God is and what he intends for the world to bring about an ordering and peace in society. For the purpose of civil government is to order society. And it's most basically stated in verse 14 as this, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. To punish those who are evil and to praise those who do good. But we should immediately ask the question of, well, who determines what's evil and what's good? Because if to do good is, to, is for all those that prop up and, and help establish the government of Saddam Hussein are good, and those that are against Saddam Hussein are bad, or those who are good are, are for some military dictator government are good, and those that are against it are bad. This is, we've lost all definition of good and evil. But the scriptures are very clear in defining for us that God is the final determiner of good and evil because good and evil is determined by the character of God. So God's character defines what is good. So those who live in harmony with the character of God are living in a good way. Those that are counter to the character of God are living in an evil way. There is not some higher standard that is above God that God himself conforms to. He is the standard of what is right and wrong and what is good and evil. Amen. Amen. And the reason why we can have a general worldwide conformity to this nature of God is because God has created every single human being with a soul. And every single human being is created in the image of God. And every single human being has a conscience and has a resident sense of the basic things that are right and wrong and are good and evil. In philosophy, this is called natural law. A sense that there are certain things that cut across all cultures that people know are right and wrong. <coughs> Excuse me. There's number one. Um, this is expressed to us in the scriptures as the Ten Commandments. The moral part of the Ten Commandments are the most basic expression of what it means to be a moral human being. And if a government, a civil government, is to punish what is evil and to praise those who are good, they should at a most basic level be enacting laws that work to punish murder and to preserve uh, peace in a society. They should be working to create laws that preserve marriage and work to put down adultery. Those that are working to uh, press people away from theft and encourage private property. Those that are punishing those that lie and strengthening contractual obligations. All of these things are basic things that come to us out of God's most basic expression of moral law. And when they are codified into society, they produce a peaceful and prosperous society. And it is the role of civil government to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good along these lines. When we look to Romans chapter 13, this authority of government is expanded all the way to where Paul says that the government has the right to bear a sword against those who do evil. This is... Uh, violence in law enforcement, or this is the ability or the right to use force, even up to deadly force, in enforcing laws against those who do evil. 
Our country has had a great struggle with this over the past few years as to what the place of law enforcement is in our society and whether or not we should have law enforcement in certain areas of society. And we saw very powerfully what happens when you roll back the police and just let people do whatever they choose to do. Well, that is the rolling back of this blessing of civil government to where we move over into this place of no government. Well, what happens when you have no law enforcement in a community? You end up with anarchy. You end up with people burning buildings and looting and rioting and all these types of things. And that should not surprise us as Christians because as Christians, the worldview that we have tells us that the heart is desperately wicked and that when we are unrestrained, terrible things will happen. And so part of God's ordained restraint of society is the enforcing of righteous laws. The world is, has a different and a mistaken view of the world, that if people are unrestrained, that they will naturally do good things and naturally benefit each other. But it doesn't work its way out that way in the real world. And so there is, in this, mixed of, uh, this mixture of governed people, in verse 15 it says this, that we should put to silence ignorant people. So how should we live in this way? Under the civil government that is seeking to Punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. We are to live as those that do the will of God and that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What Peter is getting at here is the same exact thing that Jesus spoke about and the apostles spoke about often. That when we are living our lives, Christians should not be going to jail or going to court over breaking general civil laws. Christians should not be those that are being thrown in prison for theft and for violence and for breaking their contracts and all types of things. We should not be known as ungodly people. We are to be like salt and light in the world. We're to live in an honorable way that instead puts to shame those that would accuse us of things. We are to be those that are not living in violent or perverse or thieving or lying or covetous ways. They should have no place in the church. Instead, the church is supposed to be known as a, a group of people that are strengthening the social fabric of our society. We are to be known as a people that live at peace with the world. And in our effort to honor the Lord, we are people that stand out as those that are strengthening the societies that are around us. <coughs> that we are honorable citizens. That we are generous citizens. And that we are those that are praised for doing good. When we look at those two categories, we should fall in that second category of those that are praised for the way in which we live. History is full of these examples. Church history is just full of fascinating examples of how Christians down through the ages have been those to preserve and create educational opportunities all the way up to universities. Those that have created and preserved hospitals. Those that have created and preserved orphanages. Those that have diligently cared for the poor. Those that have been honorable entrepreneurs. Those that have been dependable tradesmen, sturdy homemakers, uh, nurses, teachers. Christians have always been known as these type of people. And when society flourishes over on this good governance side, it's because the church is flourishing and the people that are in those churches are flourishing and they come together to create an environment and a community that reflects the goodness and the moral law of God. 
This is the type of citizens that you and I are supposed to be as we live under civil government ordained by God. Verse 15 is, is it a powerfully basic statement? It says, for this is the will of God. Often we ask, what is the will of God for me? Well, one of the aspects of God's revealed will is that you live as a praiseworthy citizen of the place where you live, that you live as a person of peace, as a Christian in society. But I understand many of you will have the, the same thing that I would say. But Pastor Vic, I have serious problems with the direction of the non-Christian leadership in many areas of our country. So what am I supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to live this life in that environment? Well, Peter, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, could say a great many things, but where he goes is not where we would typically go. And so I want to read this and help you understand what Peter is getting at here. He says, in this, in this situation, verse 16, we ought to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So we are to live as free people. And as we live as free people, we don't use that freedom as a license to do evil things or to enter into sinful things. Instead, we are using the freedom that we have in Christ to be servants of God and living as Christians in society. But you should ask the question, how is it that we can live under authority, which he just commanded us to do, and live as free people? How can we live freely and live under authority? Well, this goes to the definition of freedom, which is very important. Because to be free does not mean to be without rule or constraint at all. Without rule or constraint is over in this anarchy, no government category, which creates chaos. Freedom is freedom within the authority that is given to us. And this goes back to the goodness of the authority of God. I would encourage you to think of, of a game that you may enjoy playing. And when people break the rules of that game, the game is no longer fun or enjoyable because the rules just got thrown out. Or the goodness of the authority of a parent in the life of a child, where a child may want to just go do whatever they want to do. Why can't I do whatever I want to do, Mom? Or why can't I do whatever I want to do, Dad? Well, because you're under my authority. Well, that stinks. Well, no, it doesn't. It's actually their authority is very good for you. And it's important in shaping your life to become the honorable Christian person that they want you to become. And it's the same for us. The authority of God in our life and the authority of good civil government in our life is actually a blessing that allows us to function freely. But ultimately, the freedom that we are striving after and that we are looking toward is the freedom that we have in Christ. When we are doing what our heart desires to do, we're free. When you are doing what you want to do, you're a free person. And when we are in Christ, that means that our heart has been regenerated and changed. Our desires have been changed. We're a people that no longer want to live in rebellion against God. We want to do what God wants us to do. And we see that the ways of God are good ways. And as we walk in those ways, we find blessing and we want to continue walking in those ways. We have a heart changed by the grace of God to want to do good things. And so when we want to live in the way that God would have us to live, we are living in the direction of the praiseworthy side of this equation. We are wanting to live in a way that is good for society and good for our families and will be praiseworthy. 
So as we live as free people, we are living as servants of God. We're living a Godward life, a life that is as a living sacrifice to Jesus. We are living to God's glory. We are living in light of eternal and ultimate things. And it is with joy that we go in that direction. But we also know that it will bring us into conflict with civil governing authorities because they are not godly at their base. And so how is it that we continue to live free in this way? Well, the best example that I would put forward to you in the New Testament is the example of Paul and Silas in the Philippian prison. They were put there for the sake of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, an honorable end. But they were put there by a civil magistrate, and they were held there by a a civil jailer. In the stocks, but as they're in the stocks at night in prison, physically bound in their person, what does the scripture say they're doing? They're singing. They're singing praises to the Lord. And as they worship the Lord, they're visited in a special way. And that's a sermon for another day. But my point to you this morning is that even though their bodies are bound, their soul is free. And as we live in Christ Jesus, though our bodies may be bound or may be diseased or may be in so many ways unable to accomplish what we want to accomplish, in Christ our soul is free. And there have been countless Christians that have lived for the Lord in persecuted environments where their bodies were bound or their, their, their movement was restricted or whatever it may be. They did not have freedom in the way that we typically define freedom, but in Christ they were fully free. And how much better it is to have a soul that is free in Christ and a body that is bound than a body that is freely to move around, but your soul is in bondage to sin and death. And you will live in one way or the other. And so as Christians, we are called to live in freedom, to live in the freedom of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, there's much that could be said here. There's so much that could be said here. There's books and books and books written on this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring a couple of issues to bear here that I think are important when it comes to this living as servants of God under civil governments. And the first is that human governments will always have an ungodly tone. Civil governments will always have an ungodly tone. Remember the spectrum that I laid out here for you. Even on the best end of this thing, it's going to be a compromised government that is made up of many, many ungodly people. Human governments (coughs) always have an ungodly tone. This is why these commands are in Scripture. They are commanded to our weakness, and they they place us, we will be placed in positions of struggle and there will be temptation. There has always been temptation in the church to try to rise up and overthrow the government to create a theocracy of sorts that we could make this situation better if we only took up the force of arms to do what we could do. Well, the, the situation or the example of this in history that went the furthest in this happened in the 17th century in England under a man named Lord Cromwell. There was something called the Protectorate uh, under Lord Cromwell, and they rose up and overthrew the monarchy and got rid of the king and established a Christian government. And they thoroughly Christianized England, but it didn't last. It didn't even last his lifetime. He was eventually overthrown, and the monarch came back in, and a more typical civil government uh, went back to the way that it used to be. And I would ask you why. Why was this a failure, and why will this always be a failure? 
And that is because coming to Christ Jesus is not a matter of civil force. It is a matter of faith and choice of individual hearts and souls. Each and every person that comes to salvation comes to salvation through repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. And we cannot bring the sword to a person to force them to come to salvation. The sword that we mentioned earlier has to do with the role of civil government to restrain evil in law enforcement, not bringing people to worship in Christ Jesus. These are two different spheres of authority. This is constantly a problem in Islam because Islam is this way. When it comes to an area, it cannot coexist with the government that is there. There's always a seeking to rise up and to create a caliphate. A, a, an Islamic government that functions by Islamic law. The most recent version of this was ISIS in the Middle East, and we saw what a disaster that was. Christianity is different. Christianity is meant to coexist with and under the authority of civil governments. This is why we can have Christians in every government in the world. That's why there are Christians in Asia, there are Christians in Latin America, Christians in North America, Christians in Europe, and there are different forms of government all over the place, and all of them can be Christians in the environment where they live, because in Christ they are free. And in Christ, they work to help that society. And in Christ, they work to stabilize that society. And in Christ, they work to strengthen that society, promoting honor, virtue, order, and peace. Everywhere that Christians are, they strengthen the society that they are in. And so this is an important thing to consider. But secondly, I would bring to your attention Acts 5.29. Acts 5.29 is an important verse. It's a verse spoken by the same person that is writing our passage this morning, the Apostle Peter, when he is drugged before the Jewish ruling council for preaching the gospel, and they said, we told you to stop preaching the gospel. And he says famously, we must obey God rather than men. So how is it that the same person that said submit to ruling authorities says we must obey God rather than men and is openly defying these civil leaders? Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Did, let's see, a spirit of submission. Peter has a spirit of submission even though he has defied their words. Now, what do I mean by that? Peter was pulled out of prison with the apostles when they say we are going to keep preaching the gospel because Jesus Christ told us to. If you remember the ascension of Christ Jesus before he ascended into heaven, he gave them this great commandment to go and bear witness to him in all the world and that they should never stop doing it. And Peter tells them, I'm going to obey Christ Jesus because his authority is higher than you. But when he is flogged and released, Peter does not go out with violence. He does not go out with bitterness and hatefulness in his heart. He does not go out to be a religious zealot to try to form a group of people to overthrow the government. He is not consumed with opposition from the government. What does Peter do when he goes out from that place? He counts it a privilege that he has suffered in the same way as Christ Jesus. And he goes out and keeps preaching the gospel. Because preaching the gospel was the most important thing to him. That people know that Jesus is Lord. And he continues, as we've spoken of earlier, to live free in Christ Jesus. And so it is an interesting pattern that we have in the life of Peter. And what that pattern is goes back to what I said earlier. Christians should not be thrown in jail or drugged to court for breaking basic civil laws. 
Peter was not brought to that court situation for breaking civil laws. He was brought there because of his love for Jesus Christ and his unwillingness to be silent about Christ. Because what happens as governments move down this sliding scale and they get over to this bad government area, and the governments exist for their own enrichment, they also want to crush religious liberty. Because they want people to think that they are the only authority in the world and that there is no other authority higher than government. Governments that are good give wide breadth to religious liberty for people to worship as they choose and they openly recognize that they are not the only authority in the world. And so when we come to this end of bad government, we will run into greater and greater conflict when it comes to us speaking about Christ Jesus as Lord. But we must be careful that we fall into the same category as Peter and Christ Jesus himself, who was declared innocent over and over and over by the civil laws of the land. No one could bring a civil charge against Jesus. All they could bring against him was charges that he had proclaimed to be the Son of God. And so it helps us in making our decisions as to when it is that we must live in open opposition to civil government. It should be something that specifically attaches us to the, the work of the gospel and Christ Jesus our Lord. That no one can bring an account against us of guilt by, by civil law. Instead it is that we live for those who are free in Christ and we will not be silent about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of gray here, a lot of prayer, a lot of wisdom that goes into this, but I hope this will help you in looking at the way that others lived for Christ and how it is that we ought to live for them. In verse 17, it says this, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We've got two categories of people to be honored here. One is all people and the emperor, and then it elevates to loving the brotherhood and then fearing God. So in this passage, honor is the, is the lowest level. It is the most basic thing that are due to all people. When we honor all people, it means that we treat, we treat all people with dignity. All people deserve to be treated with dignity because all people are created in the image of God. No matter what race, disability, gender, nationality, age that they may be, they deserve to be treated with honor and with dignity. And when we as Christians go about in society treating all people with honor and dignity, they will be willing to hear the gospel message that we have to teach them. But if we, teach, if we treat people with disrespect and anger and the way that the world treats them, it becomes a stumbling block to teaching them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ought to hold honor for the office of emperor or the office of this highest level of authority in our land. In the same way, then we might live above reproach for the people that are around us. But in an elevated sense, we should love the brotherhood or the brothers and sisters that we find in the church. There is something special that happens here. The common bond that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord, the hope that we have in the gospel brings us closer together than we are with anyone outside in the world. It is a special love, a special care, a special concern and tenderness toward each other who have been born again in Christ. There should be an earnest love toward one another. But finally, there should be a fear of God. God is the highest authority. He is the one who we will finally stand before, who will judge the living and the dead. His seat of authority is the one 
from which everyone will stand before, and then as we'll read here in a moment, everyone will kneel. He is the one who has the authority to cast both body and soul into hell. And our fear of him is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of understanding what God's will is for us. And as we fear God, it will help us to order all the other aspects of authority in our lives. Philippians chapter 2 says this, speaking of Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I don't know where you stand with the Lord this morning. I want you to understand what we are talking about here and that Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority. I know that many of you have bowed the knee of your heart a long time ago to Jesus and put your faith and trust in him and you live under his authority and you live in a way that honors him. But there are those of you here that have not. You've never truly bowed the knee. You still have a great love for the things of this world and the authorities of this world and you want to please them and honor them in a way that is counter to Christ Jesus. I want you to be prepared for death, as we've also spoken of today, that you are prepared to meet Christ Jesus as Lord because you have put your faith and your trust in him. And in living in this way, you might be able to live at peace with both God and man. And so I encourage you this morning to take a look at your heart and where you are before the Lord and where it is that you stand before governing authorities and whether you have a great striving in your soul in these areas or whether you have been able to sort these things out and live freely and at peace before the Lord. There are other things to say here about the spheres of government, the church, and the family, and standing up for your, your, your rights under the law that we don't have time to talk about this morning. I'm going to write to you about it this week in the newsletter. I don't know how many of you received the newsletter, but you can go to our website and sign up for it. I always write something at the end of it uh, to you, and I'm going to write some more about this because there's more to be said. But I hope this is helpful to you this morning. I hope this clarifies this in some way, and I pray above all things that you know Christ as your Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Uh, we pray, God, that you will help us in these areas. Lord, that we might live in right subjection to the government, governing authorities that are in our lives. That you would help us in this way. That our hearts would be fixed upon Christ Jesus. That we would believe in your son as Savior and Lord. That the, the knees of our heart, that we would be bowed before you and that we would honor you with our life, that we would be good citizens of this land, those that are working to build it up, to live as salt and light in the world, honorable and peaceable. Lord, help us to know where it is that we must part ways with the government, that we must honor God rather than men, and what it means to live as a Christian when we are brought into direct conflict with things that are above us. Lord, we pray that you would make a way for us and that you would give us wisdom and that we would be those that are helping to see the civil authorities of our land move towards good into peace and to order. Lord, I thank you for this time together this morning, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.